This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. In the most recent newsletter, I sent, I said that every once in a while, when I feel that my practice needs a little inspiration, uh, I turn to the story of the Buddha, the Buddha's enlightenment. And when I do this, I don't just read the story, but I really try to uh, place myself there, place myself in his shoes. And I imagine him as this young wanderer at the point in which he has just left his teachers having realized that their path is not his path and that their teachings would not lead him to the liberation he was seeking. And I really, I, I spend a little time trying to imagine that, um, him really mastering, there's at least two or three that are mentioned specifically in the sutras where he practiced uh, intensely with them. And he reaches a point where they say to him, you know what I know. So why don't you stay and teach with me? And the, the, the clarity and the, of course, aspiration and the humility that it must have taken for him to realize that's not, that's not it. I may have mastered these teachings and I'm not, no closer to that state which he called the unbinding liberation. And so he goes off right on his own. And the sutras have this really beautiful passage, which I decided not to quote because I, I, I've done that before, but where he's, he's, he's traveling through the Magadan countryside. And he's looking, he's very deliberately looking for a place in which to practice. And it says that he comes upon this, this delightful grove and there's a clear flowing river that's running through it. And there's several villages around. So he knows that he can go in his begging rounds, right? So it's solitary enough, but there's also people. There's also community that he will need to depend on. And so he decides that this is the perfect spot, a sweet country. And he takes a seat and he says, this is just right for the striving of a person intent on striving. So I sat down right there thinking this is just right for striving. For some reason, I've always loved that particular passage. He looks at this spot and he says, 
this is just right for striving. And what makes that? You know, right now where, where each of you are sitting, has that been the right place for striving this weekend? And striving not just in the sense of, you know, of, of working and, you know, grunting through it, but uh, reaching, aspiring. Maybe aspiring is a better word. Wallace Stevens has a poem, The Well-Dressed Man with a Beard, and I have quoted this before. He says, after the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. No was the night. Yes is this present sun. And later, one thing remaining infallible would be enough. Ah, Dolce Campagna of that thing. Dolce Campagna, honey in the heart. And Dolce Campagna is, is that sweet country. That infallible thing that would be enough. And, you know, we could say that that's what the Buddha was looking for. The thing that would lead to the end of suffering. The thing to rely on, truly, right? The thing to take, to take refuge in, truly. And after looking for that spot with others, right, and with their teaching and deciding that's not it, he finds this little piece of land, this sweet country, honey of the heart. I like that. And he sits down, even though ultimately he must have known that that sweet country, of course, is inside, is not outside. But because he was the Buddha-to-be, he must also have realized, yes, but it helps. It helps to have a place to practice, right? We know that. We know that. Whether it's that little corner in your room, or it's a whole zendo. And when I think of this, I think of Daito Roshi. You know, the story that says that in 1980, he um, climbed through the window of the dining hall of a Lutheran camp, which before was a Benedictine monastery, because he had heard that the place was for sale. So, I mean, he broke in, essentially. <laughs> and he climbs in through the dining hall, and then he walks up the stairs, and he stands in the hallway looking at what was at that point a chapel with this high ceilings and this light-filled room and the rows of pews. When I first went to the monastery, I don't know what job I was given, um, but for some reason I had to go get something from storage in one of the old A-frames. And all the pews were still there. They had saved them. And if those of you who have been to the monastery remember that the bench in the hallway is uh, one of the pews. And so I imagine him, you know, standing in that, that hallway with his hands on his hips and seeing already that zendo, 
the straight, clean lines. It's perfectly aligned Zafus and Zavutons and thinking some version of this is just right for striving. And there are a couple of different versions in the sutras. Um, in one of the, the versions, when he sits down, he, he then proceeds to, to do the, the six years of ascetic practices. And I don't know if you've ever um, read those descriptions, but they are something. You know, he, he um, goes through a period where he decides he's going to stop breathing. <laughs> to see how long he can go without breathing. And he describes this sound like, um, I think he says like thunder or like the wind in his, in his head. And of course he passes out. So that doesn't last very long. And he describes eating less and less and less and less. And he gets to a point where uh, the hair, his hair falls off at the roots just when he touches it because it's rotted. And he says, when he touches his belly, he actually touches his spine. And when he tries to relieve himself, he's so weak that he just falls flat on his face. And at one point he actually says, I have gone as far as any human being could go, right, without dying. I could not work any harder. And this has not taken me any closer to liberation. And so there's that moment in the sutras, it says that uh, a young girl comes forward and gives him some rice gruel and that he takes it and that the ascetics that were practicing with him are just disgusted that he's now living a life of luxury. <laughs> and actually it says that in the sutras, he's afraid they're gonna think that he, now he's living a life of luxury because he took a little rice gruel. And so they abandon him basically. And there's that moment after the final no and before the first yes. And this is such an uncomfortable, excruciating, really, moment in practice. And we all go through it, not quite to that extent, where you know, without a doubt, that what you've been doing so far is not working, right? That you are at the end of your road. But you don't know yet what comes next. You don't know how to do what comes next. So it's painful and it's confusing. It's scary. But I think, especially if you have Sangha, you know, they remind you that after that final no, there comes a yes, that you can trust that. that after not this, not this, not this, not this teaching, not that teacher, not this painful striving, there's some other way. And for the Buddha is that moment when he remembers, he's eight years old and he's sitting under a rose apple tree and it's his, uh, the family and the kingdoms, the first ritual Plant, planting, you know, the plowing of the fields. 
And it's the first time he's allowed to go. And it's hot and it's crowded. And so he takes shelter under a tree. And he's looking at the scene and he's looking at the, the uh, ox, the oxen being driven. You know, and, and he sees a, an eagle grabbing a, um, a mouse and eating it. And he sees all this life and all this death and all this striving and suffering. And he's wondering, what, what is all of this? And at eight years old, he very naturally goes into this um, easeful and deep state of meditation. And he comes out of it. And at least in one version, he says to his mother, you know, all this chanting that we do, all the chanting that the Brahmins do, that's not it. That's just, it's not, that, that's not helping. I wonder what the parents thought, you know, when he said that. And so now he's something like 20, roughly, I think, 20 years later, no, a little more, 25. And he remembers this time. He remembers this zazen. And he thinks, could this be the path? to awakening, could this be the path to freedom? I remember this when my zazen feels difficult, when it feels long, when it feels painful. After all those years of study that the Buddha did, all those years of intensive practice, this is what he returns to, his body and mind a very simple stillness and silence. And that is the point where he resolves to not move from his seat until he's realized himself. And I think of this and I feel, I try to feel the courage the fierce determination that that must have taken, as I mentioned on Friday night, at the, at the limit of the known, all he had was a sense, a wordless knowing that he already had, had any, everything he needed to have, right? That everyone he needed to be, he was that. And so he sat silent and unmoving. And then Mara's armies come, right? And they wage war as they do with all of us, with every weapon they have. Greed and desire, you know, lust, thirst, doubt, especially self-doubt, especially self-doubt. That's the biggest one, actually, right? When the Buddha is saying to him, who do you think you are? to awaken. What makes you think you can do this? And he sits hour after hour, day after day, facing these demons and staring them down. And then finally, he touches his hand to the ground, asking the earth to be his witness. And he looks 
Mara in the face, which is really looking at himself. And he says, I know you. I know you, house builder. And now your, your rafters are broken. Your ridge pole is destroyed. You have nothing left to build with. My mind is now at peace. And what had to be done is done. Jesus' last words were, it is finished. Are these great religious myths, religious stories. What had to be done is done. And all of this, all through this uh, long night, which lasted many days or many weeks, depending on the story, the version of the story, it said that the Buddha saw the lives of every being that ever lived. And he saw every one of his lives and his deaths. And he understood that everything is interconnected, right? That in every cell of his body is an entire world. And that in every world, there's another cell which contains another world. There's a passage like that, in fact, in, in the Lotus Sutra, I believe, of this multiverse, <laughs> essentially. And in each one, there's a little Buddha sitting on a mile-high throne. Which means that this extends through all of space and time. Which means that here, Worlds rise and they fall, right? So when something horrific happens, another shooting, another terrorist attack, and my teacher would say, this is heartbreaking, but it is not surprising. That's why. Another world rising and falling. And he also saw how that happens. He saw the creator and the destroyer. And as this is happening, you know, clouds start to gather over him. And thunder breaks and it starts pouring. And then out of the river, Niranjara, the Naga king, the snake king, Mukalinda comes out. I love this part. I don't know why, but I love this part. He comes out and he wraps himself, he coils himself seven times around the Buddha's body and he fans out his uh, hood, kind of like a, like a big umbrella over the Buddha to protect him. He's, and and he, he said that is his vow, he's going to protect him from the elements as the Buddha is sitting. And so I imagine these two entwined, really, as the Buddha continues to sit until the rain passes. And then Mukalinda takes human form and he pays obeisance right, to the Buddha. And then he returns to his underwater kingdom. And 
And as I said, I mean, I, I confess, I love imagining all this. I love the magic and the, the, the myth of the story. But in the end, in the end, what I return to for inspiration is that very simple, utterly extraordinary moment in which the Buddha saw himself and reality clearly. The moment in which he saw things as they are. And it's because of that moment that we are sitting here today. And I wrote, you know, that when I think of this and I think, you know, of my own life being just a tiny, tiny drop in the ocean that was the Buddha's life, I remind myself that being a drop, I am made of water, the same water. So that when I'm, I travel to my own sweet country, Right, bordered by this, my, my Zabuton, the edges of my Zabuton. And I take my seat and I lower my eyes and I let my mind settle. I think, I remind myself for a moment of the power of vow, of the unimaginable, quite literally, unimaginable reach of a single yes. A yes on which the future world does depend. Every world depends. And so in whatever small measure, I too choose this yes. I too choose to, in my own case, bumble my way to the unbinding And to do that humbly for my benefit, yes, but also for the benefit of everyone. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazvisegoddard.org.